Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1? We'll be looking at verses 8 to 11 this morning. As Pastor Dan mentioned, we're just beginning a series in 1 Timothy talking about the church and understanding God's intentions for us as a part of that church. Listen to these words of Scripture. Paul writes, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the power of it, and the way it speaks to our life. It's relevant to every generation and to every person. And I pray that today you would speak by your Holy Spirit to each one of us and show us what it is that you want us to do in response to this message. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed how long it takes to build something up and how quickly it can be torn down? You can think about that in relation to a building. You think of the skyscrapers that are in our cities. It takes years to build those. And yet if you've ever seen one of them, when they have imploded them, you know that it takes only uh, some dynamite set in specific places and they can bring that whole thing down in a matter of minutes. A marriage can take years to build a strong and healthy and trusting relationship. Yet it can be devastated by an adulterous relationship or a moment of infidelity. An investment carefully built up can be lost through a poor decision or an economic downturn. And even a church carefully built can be torn apart by false teaching or by immorality in the church. It needs to be guarded and protected. Paul understood that, and that's why he wrote this letter to Timothy. You see, in Paul's farewell message to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he warned them to be on their guard against false teaching, and he said this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And now, four years later, that is exactly what was happening. False teachers in the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was left in charge, were leading people astray from the gospel. Now think about that. I mean, think about what the Ephesian church had given to them. They had the Word of God, both the book of Ephesians that we know from the New Testament, as well as this letter to Timothy. They had been given the Word of God, and they had been taught the Word of God by a writer of Scripture for almost three years. Talk about getting it from the source. I mean, you think if anybody ought to have this right and be able to put this into practice, it should have been the Ephesian church. And yet here, all of that was seriously being threatened by what was going on. The same thing was happening in Galatia. In Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul wrote, I am astounded that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. You see, what takes so long to build can be quickly torn down if it is not protected and defended. It's a reminder of the spiritual battle that we are in continually. Millard Erickson, who taught systematic theology at Bethel Seminary and at other schools, has said this. He said that there are three areas where he believes the gospel is, quote, being redefined today. And those three areas are this. The first is in the area of the doctrine of Scripture. One of the questions being debated in our world is, is the Bible the Word of God or is it the writings of men? And you will find churches and you'll find even denominations that today do not believe that this is the authoritative, inerrant Word of God. They believe that it was simply the writings of men and God spoke to them then and He speaks to us now and so things have changed over time. We in our church, our denomination, take a very high view of Scripture that this is God's inerrant, inspired Word. And it is our guide for faith and practice. And that's why the preaching of the Word is so central to our services on Sunday morning. Another area that's being questioned is the doctrine of God. Does God know the future or is it all up for grabs is one of the questions being debated. But there are others that have to do with the Trinity or the nature of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the third area is the doctrine of salvation. And one of the questions there is, is Jesus the only way to God or is he just one way? There are those in our world who would like to say that Jesus is just simply one way. And it really doesn't matter which religion or which path you choose. They all lead to God. But if you take a high view of Scripture, you take very seriously what Jesus said. That I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we find ourselves in a world today in which we need to clearly understand and defend the gospel for our generation also. That's why this passage and this book is so important for our salvation and for the health of the church. What we're going to look at today is how Paul understands the relationship between the law and the gospel and how the two work together to bring us to Jesus Christ. And there are two questions that we're going to address this morning. The first one is this. What is the purpose of the law? Why did God give us the law? What was his intention for that? And Paul talks about that in verses 8 to 10. Paul tells us that the law is good if one uses it properly, or literally if one uses the law lawfully. You see, what was happening in Ephesus was that the false teachers in Ephesus were inappropriately applying the law to Christians. And the way that you can do that, or the way that they did that, was that many in that age were saying that you had to become a Jew first in order to become a Christian, if you will. They were saying to these Gentiles that if you want to follow Christ, you have to become a Jew first and you have to practice the law in full. It would be like saying that you need to keep the law as a means of salvation, and that is not what the Bible teaches Paul said, by observing the law, no one will be saved in God's sight. Because none of us can do it. 
None of us can meet the demands of the law perfectly. We are all sinners and fall short of that. So he goes on to say that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. Now when he says the law is not made for the righteous, he's not talking generally about good people as though, well, you know, good people don't need a law. What he's talking about is more specific than that. When he uses the word for righteous, he's talking about those who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The law is not made for those who have been justified by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. The law is made for those who are lawbreakers and rebels against God. And the law was given to show what sin really is. What's interesting about the list of sins that he lists here and different actions that people do is how close they follow the Ten Commandments. And you will see that as we walk through. For example, when he talks about, and he puts these in pairs, he talks about the ungodly and the sinful, it really parallels the first and second commandments that say, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven image of me. When he talks about those who are unholy and irreligious, the word for irreligious is really the word profane, and it parallels the third commandment, that you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. God does not want us to profane His name or to use it and treat it lightly or with contempt. He talks about the law was made for those who kill their fathers or mothers. And that word there for kill is actually broader. It can refer to murder. It can also refer to dishonor. The law was made for those who dishonor their parents and are disobedient to them. The fifth commandment tells us that we are to honor our father and our mother. He goes on to say the law was made for murderers. And the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. And we know that Jesus expanded that too. It's not just the act of killing someone that he was talking about there. But Jesus said, if you have anger in your heart, if you have hatred or malice or rage in your heart, that's in the same line and that is sin in the sight of God. He said that the law was made for adulterers and perverts. The word adultery there is the word porneia in Greek. It refers to more than just adultery again. It refers to all kinds of heterosexual sin, sexual promiscuity, living together, use of pornography, things like that that can be a part of, of sin or sexual sin in the life of someone. And the Bible says that is indeed sin. The word for pervert here, I wish they had not used that word in the NIV translation because the word actually refers to homosexual behavior. It is the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 when the Bible talks about homosexual sin or male prostitutes in that day and age. What the Bible is saying here that parallels the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is that the Bible is opposed to all sin, whether it is heterosexual sin or homosexual sin. The Bible calls it what it is. He goes on to say the law was made for slave traders. That's literally kidnappers. It's interesting that the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, regarded kidnapping as the worst form of theft. It was the stealing of a person. 
and the stealing of their freedom. And the Bible says in the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. The law was made for liars and perjurers. It includes all sins of speech, like lying and gossip and slander. The Bible says in the Ninth Commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And then Paul concludes it by saying that the law was given for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine of the gospel. And the Tenth Commandment says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or their servants or their help or their possessions, their house, whatever it is that they own. We are not to covet. And the purpose of the law then, was it was given to reveal what sin really is. Paul tells us in Romans 6, 14 and 15, that those who have placed their faith in Christ are no longer under law, but under grace. That there is a change that has taken place in our life. The proper use of the law is to apply it to sinners to show them their sin, and then to present the gospel and lead them to Christ. Some of you are familiar with Ray Comfort, who in his book, when he talks about this, says that people need to understand and recognize their sin before they can come to Christ. And that is true. And in his method, he makes much of emphasizing the law so that people might see their sin and recognize it. I know that that is what God did in my life before I came to Christ. And in particular for me, one of the passages that he used was the passage in Romans 7 where Paul expressed this battle within, this desire to do what was right on the one hand and yet seeing himself do the very things that he hated on the other. And I recognized that in myself. And I came to the end of Romans 7 where Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Have you felt the weight of your sin? Have you felt what that is? Do you sense the guilt that goes along with that? You see, the Bible says that the law is like a teacher. It is a schoolmaster that was put in charge to lead us to Christ, to show us the way of our sin. The law is good, Paul says. It is holy. The law reflects the character of God and what He desires of us. The law is not a means of salvation, for there is no one who can keep it fully. The law and the gospel complement one another. One points to the other. The law reveals sin. The law condemns sin. And the law also is given to restrain sin in our world. You know, the law was given so that we might enforce certain things that are wrong in the sight of God. And punishment is given. It is given then as a guide for society and our protection. Now it's sad today that somehow we have come to the point in many circles where we feel like we don't need the Ten Commandments anymore. We can kind of go by our own standards and rules and decide what's right and wrong as a society. God has given us His Word as a way for us to know what is right and appropriate in our behavior. And we fall far short of it. The law was given to point us to Christ. Martin Luther said the law is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. For it shows them their sins so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled 
and frightened and worn down, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring that is Christ. And in this sense, the law was given. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I have often said that one of the truest indicators of salvation in a person's life is their willingness to admit their sin. If you were to ask someone the diagnostic question, you know, if, if you were to die tonight and you stood before God and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that? If a person answers that question by saying things like, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person, you know, or I haven't done anything that bad, or I'm better than my neighbor, or, you know, I've tried to do this or that, they don't understand it. They don't understand the gospel. But if someone comes before God and they say, God, I am a sinner, and I do not deserve your grace, but I have placed my hope in Jesus Christ, as my Savior and Lord, as the one who died for me, they understand the heart of the gospel. The law was given to bring conviction of sin, to show us what sin is. Paul said, I would not have known what coveting was apart from the law that said, do not covet. We would not know right and wrong apart from the word of God that gives us that clarity of instruction. And then it points us to the solution that is Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the remedy to our sin. It's the cure. The gospel is the good news that God has provided a way of salvation so that or through faith in Jesus Christ so that we can be forgiven of our sins. We can be born again to a new life. We can change. We have hope. Whenever someone comes to know Christ, the change that takes place in their life is a miracle. It's a miracle that is as amazing as raising the dead. Because when we come to faith in Christ, this person who was dead is now made alive. And this person who once could not see now has their eyes open to see the truth. And this person that could not hear is given new ears to hear what God has said. And that's a miracle that God does whenever a person turns to faith in Him. One of the clearest ways to present the Gospel is by using something that is called the Romans Road. It is just one method. There are others as well, but this is a very easy way to do it. It simply takes a number of verses from the book of Romans in a logical way and explains what the Gospel is all about. It starts with Romans 3.23 that says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. All of us have missed the mark of God's standard of holiness and righteousness and perfection. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we deserve is punishment. What we are headed toward is hell. What God gives us by His grace is this gift of life in Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.8, the Scripture says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for us because we were good people. Christ didn't die for us because we were lovely in and of ourselves. Christ didn't die for us because He saw some potential in us. 
Christ died for us because He loved us. And He did it freely by His grace. And Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. See, he's saying that it is a matter of the heart, and the words express what's on our heart. And if you truly understand and recognize your sin and admit that to God, and you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, and you place your trust in Him as your Savior and Lord, He will take you at your word and He will begin a new relationship with you. And Romans 10.13 gives us this wonderful promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how you've lived or what your attitude has been. If you recognize your need for Him today and you call upon Christ with all your heart, you will be saved. And the book of Romans gives tremendous promises in that book that when we do that, we have peace with God. We are reconciled to Him. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because He has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, that's why Paul calls the gospel the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The Gospel is glorious because it reveals the work of God in His Son. It shows us how much He loves us and what He was willing to do for us that we could come into a relationship with Him. God wants you to spend eternity with Him. He wants you to come and find your sins forgiven. He invites you to come and place your trust in Him. The glorious Gospel also comes from the happy God, the blessed God. I love that phrase. You see, so many of us at times or in the past perhaps, and maybe still, have this image of God as an angry God. A God who is sitting up there in heaven waiting for you to do something where you get out of line and then He just kind of smacks you. And some people, that's the picture that they have of God as just of an angry, stern judge. And there are times when that picture is appropriate. The sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, was used mightily by God when Jonathan Edwards preached that in the first Great Awakening. But sometimes we need to hear the other side, that when we come to faith in Christ, we are saints in the hands and in the loving arms of a happy God. Our God is a happy God. He is infinitely happy. God delights in being God. He delights in His creation, in all that He has made. God delights in all that is good in our world. God delights in His children who choose to obey Him and follow Him. And most of all, God delights in His Son, Jesus Christ, in whom He is well pleased. And God desires to share that joy with you and with me. In Psalm 16:11, the psalmist says, "You have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand." You want to be truly happy. You want to find great joy. It's found in Jesus Christ. 
A number of years ago, a young man who was in training at seminary to be a pastor, his name was Michael. He was in a clinical pastoral program where he was required to spend time at one of the local hospitals in the Chicago area, learning to do counseling, coming alongside of people in times of crisis. And in one of these situations, one night, he got a phone call, and there had been a terrible car accident involving some teenagers. When he got to the hospital, he found out more of the details of what had happened. A 16-year-old girl had been driving that night with her friends in the car, and she had backed into a light pole. And the pole had broken off, and it had come crashing down onto the car. And a 12-year-old girl in that car was severely injured. In fact, by the time she got to the hospital, they found out that she was brain dead. And Michael had to walk through some of those agonizing decisions with her family of what do you do? And they chose to turn off the life support and allow their daughter to die. He also met with this young 16-year-old driver over the days that followed, and she was recovering from her physical injuries but emotionally she was devastated knowing that what she had done had resulted in the death of her friend. She said to Michael, she said, you know, I'm going to be like a daughter to those parents. I'm going to go over to their house every day and I'm going to babysit for them and I'll wash their dishes or I'll help around the house or I'll do whatever it takes. And Michael gradually helped her realize the truth that no matter what she did, she could never replace their daughter. There was nothing that she could do that could make up for their loss. All she could do was ask for forgiveness and hope that the parents would find it in their heart to forgive her. And the parents who lost their daughter amazingly did forgive this girl. And she was set free from trying to repay a debt that she could never repay no matter what she did. That's what Jesus did for us. Because of our sins, we had a debt, a mountain of debt, that we could never hope to repay by things that we could do. But Christ took those sins, that debt upon himself, and he paid the penalty for us so that we could be forgiven and we could be free. Have you felt the weight of your sin? And have you come to Christ admitting that to him and asking him to be your Savior and Lord? If not, would you like to pray to receive Christ's gift of salvation today? I'd invite you, as I close in prayer this morning, if you would like to do that, to simply pray this prayer along with me in your own heart. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I need you. And I confess to you my sin. And I ask you to forgive me for the things that I have done. I invite you to come into my life and to be my Savior and Lord. Help me to know you better and to follow your will for my life. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. In your name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, God will take you at your word. And I would encourage you to tell someone. We would love to help you grow in your relationship with him. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loves us and by His grace has given us eternal encouragement and good hope. May He encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed 
and word. Amen.